Welcome to Core Parenting Conversations. My name is Kaylee Kukla, and I've spent more than a decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of three, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my professional knowledge coming from over a decade of work experience with my master's degree in early childhood special education and combining it with real mom life, not just the theory, to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations and you'll gain practical tools that will inspire you to get to the heart or the core of your child's behavior and make simple yet impactful changes. So let's dive in together. I have a big treat for everybody today, including myself. I'm really excited about this conversation because we are continuing the last episode. So if you haven't listened to the episode before this one, it is our family's NICU story, our baby who brought us there. And we spent five weeks in the PICU and NICU and it saved his life. We got discharged on June 12th. And he got to come home. And, you know, if you've had a baby and they hand off your baby after they're born and you just leave the hospital, you're like, oh, this is mine. I'm in charge of it now. Okay. You know, even though being a third time mom, like that was kind of the moment of, oh, wow, now we're really doing this that I had once we were discharged. And so I brought my friend and also confidant colleague, and now she works oh so closely with myself and my son doing early intervention work and that's her name's Nicole Stanton she's an MNRI therapist Nicole I'm going to let you break that down for us because most people probably haven't heard of that but they're going to hear about it today and I'm just so excited to share with them this this resource that just changed everything about our baby's developmental trajectory even as young as six months and you started working with him while he's still in the hospital so Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. MNRI is definitely a mouthful. It stands for the Moskatova Method of Neurosensory Motor Reflex Integration. That's the MNRI. It's postgraduate training. So a lot of PTs, OTs, speech therapists end up being trained in this modality. And it's hands-on work. It's a lot of multiple day coursework. And most of all, it's a passion. The group of therapists that come and work conferences are some of the most dedicated and passionate therapists that I've come across because they want to be, because they see the change in the families and and in the children. And we just love learning and working with Dr. Muscatova. So that's what MNRI stands for. (laughs) And who you are and what you do professionally. (laughs) Right. Right. So much more personally. But yeah, and we had the great privilege really to go to a conference to bring our baby to the conference and experience that. And it was four four days of four to five therapy sessions a day with a wide variety of specialists targeting certain patterns. You can correct me. Like one was neurostructural, one was archetype. So it targets different pathways, so to speak, for him. Yeah, it and- allows, yeah, the conference. So when I work outside of conference with 
babies with children, I usually have an hour once a week. And so I'm pulling from different protocols. One of the things that I love about MNRI is it provides so many tools. It's never a lack of resources. It's always a lack of time. So what I'm doing in that hour session is usually pulling from the neurotactile protocol, which helps to regulate the tactile processing and the tactile receptors. And I'm pulling from repatterning, which is the actual primary reflexes and rewiring those. And I'm pulling from archetype, which you mentioned, which is the developmental movement patterns. And I'm pulling from oral facial, which is pretty self-explanatory, right? But in, in conference, you get an hour of each of those modalities to be able to go through them in their protocol as they were designed so beautifully by Dr. Mascotoba. So it really is such a great opportunity to get the full breadth and depth of the work of Dr. Mascotoba. Okay, so let's back up because you and I started jargony speaking uh, right off the bat because we're both big nerds, self-proclaimed big nerds. <laughs> I know, but we really need to break it down for people because they're like, I'm sorry, you've lost me, Kaylee. Like, no. Okay, so let's go back to uh, the beginning of our story. Okay, sure. you discovered me, then I reached out to you or something like that when we were both pregnant with our second boys. So this was easily, they're now six. Yes. So this was over six years ago. Mm -hmm. And I had a very strong understanding just from my background in special education of traditional occupational therapy and sensory integration. And when I met you and started learning about MNRI, I started mentioning things about my other son, my first son that I was noticing. And you were like, well, let me do some work on him. And I was like, great. I would love that. During a session with him, you noticed my second son was army crawling, right? Not pushing up with his hands, but on his elbows, like army crawling, which is crawling to most people. He's fine. He'll walk and we'll forget about it. And you were like, I'll never forget. You're like, can I do a test on him? I promise I'm not going to drop him. It's going to seem like I'm dropping him, but I'm not really going to let him hit the floor. And I was like, yeah, I trust you, but what? <laughs> And you did it. And you were like, mm, yeah, so he has no, and you threw out this term. I was like, what is she talking about? Hand supporting. And we need to work on that. And I, of course, I was like, okay, I trust you. I'm, I've seen this now, the effects of this be really helpful to my first son. Let's go ahead and give this a try. And within, I think about four to six weeks, he started crawling on his hands. And then he still got two to three solid months of really good crawling before he started walking. So I was really happy about that. But I didn't fully understand this and the effects of this, you know, five, six, five years ago. And now I have a much better understanding just because we've worked together for so many years. We've collaborated for so many years. So it has to do with children and babies motor patterning, right? What's the primary purpose of a reflex? Let's start like the bread and butter. What's a reflex? Why is it important? And how does that play into things like I just mentioned, like crawling, you know, these bigger gross motor skills for my other son, it was like he would, what is known most of the time as like sensory overload. He would get so overloaded, he would just shut down and freeze. And now how it'll become obvious once we start explaining, I think how that's helping our baby now after his time in the, the NICU. Yeah. So just so. ask a lot of questions, but start wherever you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's a reflex is a good one to start with. It is a genetically encoded 
sensory motor pattern. And that lays the foundation for higher level learning, skill development, motor development. And Dr. Moskatova based a lot of her research starting in 1989 on the teachings of the Russian scientist Vygotsky. And Vygotsky is big in the education space, right? Like his name gets thrown around a lot. Yes, he is. <laughs> but the, re the research focuses on his other stuff and not so much on the reflexes. So I think it's important to note that I think that she has this special emphasis because she did, her contemporaries were discussing this more than we are in the States. And the sensory motor component, the motor component can also be glandular, which is really important when you start to make the leap from, okay, how can these motor skills that you guys are talking about relate to behavior, emotion, anxiety later on? Well, motor response can be an HBA stress axis response. It can be releasing cortisol. It can be glandular. And that's in response to a sensory stimulus. Are you meaning like hormones and cortisol, like the sure. neurochemical yeah, stress, stuff? Stress okay. hormones, neurochemical. Okay. I mean, if you think down to the very fine motor, pupil dilation, pupil mm. response, that's a motor reflex. So is the different hearing reflexes, those tiny little muscles in your ears. There's all types of things that we kind of forget that are also responses, motor responses, glandular responses, hormonal responses to specific sensory input. And these are important not just that we make sure that they go away and that we extinguish them. It's really important that we understand that they don't go away. They serve the neurological building blocks for development. They serve a purpose. They're like the blueprint for later on developmental skills. So they're protective and they're also developmental. And we see like it's often easier to give a specific example of one reflex. It's pretty well defined in the literature that if you have a child that has an unintegrated or a poorly functioning symmetric tonic neck reflex, which is STNR, that they're going to have challenges with sitting still, learning attention, and visual motor skills. So those primary reflexes serve to lay the pathways for later future development of, of higher level skills. And so they can be developmental and they can also be protection survival. And in the case of babies, they are developing in their pure and automatic state so that things carry on as they're supposed to in a pretty predictable time manner. And that's why when I saw your little guy at nine months, I think he was still on, on his belly as opposed to hands and knees, I know because of what neurodevelopment says, chronology, timeline, that should not be the case. And so if he's not crawling as he should at nine months, it's because there is a reflex that did not do its job. So what do we do then? We get to step in. We don't have to wait and say, oh, I wonder if this is going to lead to that difficulty with the academics, like I talked about with the STNR. We get to intervene, step in use that genetically encoded pathway, show the body, train the body, and work with the system rather than against it, develop that reflex, and then 
things carry on so much easier than if we just ignore them or try and make them go away. Yeah. And I love how you highlighted STNR and and a specific reflex, because I think, you know, when we're talking about building this foundation, we're talking about building foundational motor patterns in response to stimuli, right? So if those basic foundations aren't in place, then higher level skills, it's like trying to build on sand. It's it's very unstable. It gets kind of wonky. It might stand. You might, you know, he was eventually going to learn how to walk, but then you've got other skills that come in. And especially when we're talking about that hand supporting reflex, I sometimes when I'm explaining this example to people, Basically, and I remember him, you know, not catching himself when he was sitting, when he was learning how to sit up and he just like flop over and he bash his head. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I always have to pillows around him to, you know, no concussion, please. But, you know, that translates into like boundaries. He never like like social boundaries, not just the the pushing up from the floor, but the close talkers. And he's my very passionate, driven child. And I always think, you know, wow, he would have been that passionate, loud and, and driven right in front of my face, close talking all the time if you hadn't noticed it and said something and intervened with him and supported him. <laughs> Well, and I think hand supporting is such, I mean, I hate to just spend too long on one or two reflexes, but, and at the same time, it is such (laughs) a good illustration for how reflex translates to challenges later on because of what you just said, it's the personal space thing, but it's also when you were talking about him falling over and not being able to Mm -hmm. catch himself, when Mm -hmm. that becomes the strategy further on. So past just nine, 10 months. And the body innately knows that the reflex is literally not going to be there to catch. Then the nervous system in its wisdom is going to recruit other sources (laughs) to help. It's like, all right, hand supporting, you're not working. I'm going to ramp up my visual scanning, my hypervigilance. I'm going to be more... Mm anxious, right? I mean, more cautious. You have to compensate around that. And the personal space, the boundary thing, that's another excellent illustration. It's, It's that connection between motor and cognition. Because if you don't have the physical representation of it in your in your body, then you're not going to have then the abstract understanding of it in your, in your brain. So if you don't have that automatic understanding of physically where my space ends and your space begins, because when you develop that hand supporting, it didn't for whatever reason, then you're either going to make sure that people stay out of your personal space because you don't really quite comprehend how close they are automatically, subconsciously, or you're going to be in other people's personal space because you don't understand that that's a thing. So it's that they're on their belly, they're pushing up. And the important thing to remember is these reflexes are not happening in an adult. So you're not going through these movement patterns in an adult. You have to kind of really put yourself... (laughs) And understand your work, the baby is going through the reflexes with an immature, highly plastic, highly, highly immature nervous system where experience is going to wire and fire together and form those connections. And those connections that are formed or not, you know, pruned away, if not formed, 
serve that foundation as things keep happening and experience keeps piling on later. So imagine you have a six-month-old on the floor on his belly and he's pushing up. And not only does he have an immature motor system, he has an immature body schema. Where is my middle? Where is the horizon? Where is up and down? So as he's pushing up and using this motor pattern of hand supporting, pushing up on the belly, his eyes are trained right in front of him. So you're training for posture and vision to be connected. And that comes up a lot later on. So when I have a child that's older that comes to me and is having difficulty, oftentimes posture and vision are not well linked because you have this very immature visual system. You have this very immature reflex system and you're pairing together the distance of the hand and the accommodation to look at the, the visual contact with the, with the surface in that distance. So I love the hand supporting. We just, we've really been focusing on that right now with my current baby, no longer my big guy. Now he's six. So he, he got it and he still let me do it. We were doing cha-cha. We call them cha-chas. We were still doing cha-chas the other night. We were still yeah. doing the motor patterning, I guess you could say, or, you know, the, we call them exercises, but you're literally yeah. just moving the body around. So people who've never seen it done before. So the baby though has started like pushing up more and more, which is a big deal because that's something we've been really focusing on with him because I think, you know, the reason why I wanted to have you on is, well, a lot of different reasons because I love this work too, but also to let people know the continuation of the day we get discharged, our journey didn't end. You know, it was definitely a big, huge sigh of relief. But also just because of my work in early intervention, I know that's the day my work began. So I kept telling the doctors in the hospital, you, you get them healthy enough to where we can get out of here and I will take over. Once we get out of here, that is my jam. Just get me out of here, please. And so I feel like the doctors and nurses really rallied around us because they really understood that like I was rearing to go with them, you know, and get busy on all the work I know um, lay ahead of us. because. You know, he was heavily sedated. Um, he was intubated for 17 days. He was heavily sedated for longer than, well, heavily sedated, I'd say for those two weeks. And then he was weaned off the medication for another, I think about 10 days and, and had all the withdrawal symptoms and all that stuff. And that doesn't even talk about all the surgery he had, all the extra lines he had going in and out of his body and his legs, his arm, I mean, everywhere. He had lines everywhere. So his little body had a lot of trauma. It endured a lot of trauma to save his life. And so I knew when we were getting out of there, if you've ever read like the body keeps score, for example, right? That's kind of what we're talking about. Like the body remembers, the brain body remembers this stuff happening. And and these this critical time that typically in a baby's life, they get a chance to go through these patterns and experience them for the first time and start wiring and firing them together. He didn't have that. He was really restricted for the first five weeks on really the first two weeks and then continued for the first five weeks. So we had to make up a lot of ground and I knew and I find that, you know, the other services mentioned or available to us, I just really felt like, okay, we're missing pieces here. This isn't quite enough. And there you were standing there 
coming in and showing me, okay, this is what we're working on. This is why. Rolling over, that's a gross motor milestone, right? That's how many reflexes did you pattern for us to get into the point where he, we call him now Roly Polioli because he rolls, he rolled over to his toy bucket to get his toy bucket last night, which is, was a huge deal, huge deal. Because how many different reflexes did you have to pattern to get him to that point where he was rolling? Quite a few. It wasn't just one or two. It wasn't just the motion of rolling over. It was, I can think off the top of my head, four different reflexes that we really strung together to get to happen. But I'm sure there was many more than that. So it's just, that's why I wanted to have this conversation because I feel like this is, and they often call it in in the MNRI world, the missing link. This so often is overlooked and, oh, the baby, basically all you hear about these reflexes is, oh, the baby isn't startling anymore. So you don't have to swaddle it. So that's the moral reflex. Well, it's more than that. You know, it's more than that. So I wanted to highlight that and I wanted to highlight on what parents, you know, what they can do, like what are the most important things at home, important positions to put your baby, where to put them so they can naturally go through these developmental stages and give their body a fighting chance to pattern these reflexes in a way that is organized so that then they can have a solid foundation for these higher level skills. But Because by the time these kids come to me and they're four or five and they, they quote unquote can't sit still, which is loaded. We both agree that's a pretty loaded phrase for a four or five year old, right? They're meant to move. Okay. Four and five, you're meant to move y'all. But the expectation in a lot of places is that they sit for circle time or they sit to do reading work or whatever. If they can't sit and attend to even something they really enjoy, it can be indicative of there's something going on here. Their, their body is not connected in some way that empowers them to be able to pay attention to something they really enjoy. Especially when we're talking about babies when they're fresh and they're primed for these motor patterns. Like what are the big things that parents can feel really confident and hopeful in doing with their babies? Yeah. And there's a lot. And there's also a lot working against them because mm-hmm. we live in a culture that marketing is is marketing <laughs> and is and is, I don't want to say preying on because that sounds sinister, but they're trying mm-hmm. to make money. And mm-hmm. so they're using powerful claims that if you mm-hmm. buy this toy, it's going to develop this skill. Or if you buy this soother or this positioner or this jumper, and I'm not here to, to take away anything. I'm here to add to the understanding of how important and how unique zero to 12 months is because I'm sure parents hear a lot what they should do. And that can feel really overwhelming because they're hearing from a lot of different sources. Well, my mom says I should do this. And my pediatrician says, I don't need to worry about this. And so I want to give a little bit of the why, and then I'll give a little bit of the what, because I think if parents are empowered with why any of this matters, it's easier, especially as a first-time mom, <laughs> to stand convicted and, and confident. Yes, and confident. Like, this is, I'm doing this because it's important and this is important for the development and I know why. So zero to four months, 
babies are operating in almost pure automaticity. That means it's those reflexes time to shine. Four to six months is transitional, where there is starting to be some conditioned reflexes. So working out of a little bit more of experience layered on top of the automatic, purely automatic reflexes. Six months and on is is transitional and practicing and integrating those reflex patterns. If you take courses from Dr. Moskotova, she gets very specific. I want this reflex by this time. I want this reflex by this time. And if you need that level of specificity, that's available to you. And you can go to a, a professional, an MNRI professional and get that. But I would say in general, understanding that the importance of reflex being what it is and allowing for it to develop, understanding that chronology is really important. So timing is really important. There's genetic genetic encoding for these reflexes to happen at a certain time for a reason, because that's when these other things are developing at the same time too. So up until four to six months, you want to make sure that baby has had lots of time to develop, I'll give an example, asymmetric tonic neck reflex. This is a huge one. This is huge for auditory processing. This is huge for attention. This is huge for reading. This is huge for midline crossing and bilateral hand skills. It's it's a very big one. And the sensory stimulus is turning of the head. That's it. That's the sensory stimulus. And the motor response should be that fencing posture, the extended arm on the same side, the flexed arm and leg on the on the opposite side. And if baby doesn't have the opportunity to go through those movement patterns and integrate, and it's, first of all, not just integrate, because integrate implies that it's being integrated into higher level centers, but activated, going through those, the purpose being to lay those neurological wiring and firing for hearing, for activating that activated side, the vestibular system and auditory system working together. If that happens when it's supposed to, before that four to five month time, it takes 12 repetitions. If I have a child that I get later on and we've got to integrate this ATNR, Number one, they're already, they're having a harder time with auditory processing, with possibly tolerating sounds and ambient noises and reading. And it takes a lot longer than just 12 repetitions of the movement. And because we all lead busy lives, there's a lot of times where baby has to be in something that restricts their movement. We need them to be safe in the car. So we put them in a car seat. They have to sleep a lot. So then they are in their cribs or then they're in their pack and plays and they're sleeping. They're not moving around. So what we can do, and this is the what, like, okay, yes, it's important. Now, what do we do about it? We just have to make sure with whatever situation we have at home, dogs, other children, what have you, that we have a dedicated safe space to lay baby down flat on belly and on back as often as possible. And that's going to be the key for all of the 17 to 20 reflexes that are important. 
And I'll say from a mom's perspective of, okay, so I'm a third time mom and this was the goal. I mean, you were here the the week he came home, you know, from the hospital, you were here and you were working with him and working with me and we were trying to get this set up and you were telling me the importance of horizontal time, you know, tummy time, back time, all the time on the flat (laughs) one way or another. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it was really overwhelming at first because I spend a lot of time in the kitchen area. And our playroom is in eyesight, but he also, he's a spitty up baby. He's got a lot of stuff, I think, going on from being intubated and having so many mm-hmm. tubes in him. So that's been a challenge. And so I wasn't comfortable like laying him down even that far away, even though he was technically in eyesight with the prospect of spit up happening. And when you're in it, I just want to tell moms, like when you're in it and you're trying to come up with this, it can feel so overwhelming and like it it can't be done. I don't know how to do this. And it took you and I ping ponging kind of back and forth a little bit to figure out like we just started using the pack and play because that's what we were using for him when he was sleeping on our room. The pack and play has like a platform in it so he can raise up and keep it right by my bedside. And I started just dragging that out in the morning. And I literally like drag that from the kitchen. I drag it out to the porch for outside time. You know, I drag it in the front yard. So like he was getting, he was kind of following me around. He was near eyesight. And that just took some time because with, yeah, two other siblings who like their play space too, and a big dog walking around, you know, that was a real concern. So it it sounds simple, but it's not always easy to kind of wrap your head around when you're in that. But I can say now that we've set up a system around the house and just throughout our day where, yeah, he's in his car seat a lot. Like he's got two older brothers that I have to pick up from school and drive to activities. And I take him to appointments. Like he's got to be in his car seat when we do those things. But then when we're at home, wherever we are, like we make up for a lot of that time. It's just it was a process getting there. Yeah. And there's a lot of intention. There are some helpful things, you know, and they're not always necessary, but sometimes they can make or break it. Mm -hmm. Like in your situation, that was a pack and play for you. For a lot of clients, it's the pop and play. There's a lot of iterations of this. Now, when my littlest was a baby, summer pop and play was pretty much the only one I think Mm -hmm. around in it. Accordions in and accordions out. So it's very mobile. I just like threw all the baby toys in there and I could move it, move room to room. I think it's designed to be an outdoor thing, but I used it indoors. I had hard floors. So I put a blanket underneath it and put the pop and play on top of it. Because if you put a blanket in there, it just bunches up. Right. So, and it's also good to let them not have the, the socks on all the time so that they can use that Babinski reflex and start to work on the bower crawling. And, and another thing too, is, um, if you find that you get to the end of the day and you're like, "Ah, we didn't get any tummy time in, that's usually because you might be putting baby down on their back first, and they might be content to do that for a lot longer than tummy time. And I recommend, okay, you've changed diaper and now it's playtime. It's floor time, put baby down habitually on belly first and they'll let you know when they're when they're ready to roll over if they're not yet rolling. And if that's a minute in the beginning, that's fine. But if it's your habit to always be putting baby down on belly, then you're not going to get to the that end of the day feeling of oh crap, I was supposed to do tummy time. Like I would (laughs) rather it be 
tummy time is the default and it's not really like another thing that I have to think about. It's not a checklist item. It's just something that we do habitually when it's floor time, when it's play time, I put baby down on belly first. I don't know why that isn't like what you just said. It's not something else on your to-do list. It's just how you do things. Like that's just the default as opposed to an extra. I don't know why that's not said more. I think that's a golden nugget, quite honestly. And it's so funny now that we call and actually we just call him roly poly oly because every time I put him down, he's like rolling, rolling, rolling. And the other day I just I put him down on his belly. I was like, okay, put you in there. And then I look over and his I see his feet and his hands in the air. And I got real confused. I was like, I just like it was like I put him down and then I turned my back to walk two feet away. And then I turned back to check on him because he was making all this, you know, noise like talking. And I looked over and it's just but now he can do that, right? He's at that stage where he is quite mobile when he rolls. And so he's able to do that. But it wasn't that way just a few months ago, for sure. And getting in tummy time was really difficult because he spit up so much on his tummy. So it, it really took a big conscious effort of staying committed to it as well. But yeah, I love that because it is it can feel really overwhelming when there's just so many things on our to-do list to get done with the babies all day. Yes. Yes. And and both are important, you know, tummy time and back time. They're both equally important. And I, I tend to say do tummy first because once they figure out how to roll onto their back, then, you know, if, <laughs> if that's not a preferred position, then it's going to be a little harder to keep them in it. And it usually will be a preferred position if you start early enough. And I think that's another issue is I think there's there might be some information out there that says that you have to wait till a certain time to start tummy time. And that's not true. You can start right away. I think that's a really good point for moms too, just and parents really of just being aware that it is safe as long as it's supervised and in a safe space for baby to put them down and, and be aware of that. This core conversation is made possible through Kaylee's core membership program. If you find yourself soaking up the information in this podcast and others, but still grapple with questions like, how do I get my kid to listen? What happens when I try that and it doesn't work? Or if you just crave like-minded and like-hearted parents who are also on this wild parenthood journey, you found your place in core. I take the theories and strategies and I'm constantly adapting them and applying them to real life through monthly deep dives, handouts, workbooks, and live Q&As. So if you want to take your parenting with intention to the next level, or you just need more support, check out CORE at www.kayleekukla.com backslash C-O-R or head to the show notes for the link. So we've talked about the motor patterns and how they start developing right away when baby comes out or even in utero, right? They start developing some of these motor patterns in utero, which is just so reflexes, amazing. Yeah. So reflexes come online in utero. There's a huge mass of them that, that kick on at about 11 weeks in utero. And then they use the reflexes. There's a whole class on just the birthing process, the reflexes in the birthing process. And they use those in birthing. They use trunk extension. They use ATNR. They use spinal gallant. They use spinal perez. And then the birthing process itself activates some of those reflexes. So the stimulus of the back 
coming through the birth canal is giving that input to spinal perez, which is again, I'm getting into the jargony, but yes, they originate in utero, they activate at birth, and then they're active, very active in early, early childhood. That's mind boggling. As baby grows, let's fast forward because you know my passion's early childhood as well. So as baby grows and develops, and these are kind of the foundation that's being set, maybe there's a parent out there that's listening that's like, okay, I don't have an infant. Now my child is five or six. And I'm noticing there are some of these behaviors you've touched on, like personal space or a lot of difficulty sitting still, like more so than your typical four or five-year-old. I'm starting to think that maybe they have, you know, a label associated with them or, or what are some things you and I have had this conversation before and I just love it because it's not complicated. We don't have to necessarily complicate it right out of the gate. Like there are some really great free resources that parents can access to support their children's, I like to call it a mind-body connection, right? It's the body experiencing things that's triggering a neurological, like the, the mind. Mm-hmm. And giving feedback to the body and then the body responds to the mind and it creates this like back and forth. So what are some of those things that you know we've talked about in the past of that can really be incredible for young children past infancy, but young children's mind-body connection? Yeah, there are quite a few that I love that I always go to. And I did just want to briefly touch on swaddling. Yeah. It can be a very oh. brief little yeah, uh, I would love to see because of the work that Dr. Moskotova has shared, infants be done swaddling by eight weeks because of the activity of the reflexes and the potential for mixture of reflexes and learning basically the incorrect pathways that can lead to difficulties later on. But yes, for older children. So would you say like you're looking for four to six age range suggestions. Yeah. that Cause I think, you know, and you and I, we've been doing this long enough together, right? Where we get four to six year olds and the alarm bells are going off all of a sudden, because that's when most kids start school, some sort of organized schooling. And so all of these behaviors that can typically be challenging in a school setting, right? That's when they start popping up, whether it be uh, the social stuff, like get it, pushing, hitting, getting too close to friends, bumping into them in line, uh, wiggling too much at carpet time, yelling out, not being able to sit still, not difficulty processing direction. I mean, you name it, right? We hear all this stuff like basically every day between between the two of us. So, yeah. um, and I feel like four to six is kind of when that really starts spiking. Wouldn't you say that's when you get a lot yes. of yes, those referrals? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, and the number one thing that I want to get out of the way is if you do want to seek out reflex integration, it's never too late. Yeah. I have a wonderful story about integrating my ATNR at 33, I think I was. So that's the beauty of the of the work is it's the patterns are there and ready to be intervened. But outside of of working with a therapist, there's a lot of things that you can do. And a lot of them are free and relatively simple and easy to do. My favorite one that I tend to recommend the most is walking. Just going for a walk, going outside, going. Wait, hold on a second. Y'all, you have to listen to this. I know that felt really anticlimactic. Okay, really anticlimactic. But and listen to what it does because it is really powerful. And and it's so funny because I think even that the 20 minute stupid mental health 
walk has kind of caught on now with adults of like yes. how important just going out and walking. But it's who would have thunk it's really important for our kids as well. So sorry, I interrupted, but I just had to say that. <laughs> I know. And that's the part that, that everybody's reaching to turn it off, right? Okay, she wants me to go for a walk. Wow, so sophisticated. <laughs> but here's all of the things that are wrapped up in going for a walk. Number one, from a reflex perspective, you're activating basically the brain reset button. Automatic gate reflex is like the refresh, the reset button for the brain. You're also activating distance vision. So I'm sure you can imagine as an adult, you get kind of stuck on something. And that tends to be the time when not only are you stuck in your thinking, your vision is usually pretty stuck in something that's close up. Usually when you're caught in a little loop, you're not looking at the picture in the other room, right? You're looking down, your eyes are focused in, you're kind of hunched forward a little bit. You're probably not sitting up super straight. Your breathing is probably not super slow. So what walking does is it allows your body to go into this more relaxed parasympathetic state because you're hitting the big three, the breathing, the vision, and the posture. If you change those three, you can change your your mental state. Can I make a few connections that are like firing in my brain right now as you're talking? Mm-hmm. Two things came up. One is when you're looking at things, like you were saying, close up, your breathing is maybe shallow and more rapid so, and you're hunched, you know, your pa- your posture's hunched. That brought up screen time for me. Mm-hmm. And how children can have a lot of difficulty, especially if it's like a tablet or like a smaller. And so they're hunched, you know, watching mm-hmm. it, looking over it. So it's the trifecta there. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So if those things are affecting and we, we weren't going to go into screen time, but if that, I just want to point this out. So if that's a big difficulty point and, and your child is one of those children that gets really dysregulated coming off of screen sometime, a walk could help be a really great reset after, okay, you do this. And then we go on like a family walk or you come walk the dog with me or, or that's just a part of the routine. And that could be really helpful to come off that screen time rage that a lot, a lot of parents talk about. Yes. And it, yeah. it can be helpful for that. Absolutely. 100%. It can be helpful for kids that have a tendency to anxiety and OCD. It can be really helpful for just resetting the mood. If you have a child that just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's a bi-directional impact of both vision and breathing on the nervous system. And what do I mean by that? Dr. Huberman talks about this. So if you have people that are into all of this stuff for adults, basically biohacking for adults, the same is true for children. And especially sometimes more so that if you want to calm down your brain, you calm down your breathing. So it's bi-directional. And I think people intuitively understand that. But the same is true for vision. So if you want to calm down your breathing and your nervous system, then you should engage your distance vision. And what better way to do that than by going on a walk? And it allows you as mom to not have to be like, Johnny, take three deep breaths. Johnny, we need to do X, Y, Z to calm down which honestly I found myself doing and it's pretty futile, but then you just go out for a walk and you say, what color is that bird over there? 
is that a blue jay or is that a, I don't know, I can't tell. And then you're engaging their curiosity. You're able to like easily step out of whatever funk you were in. And honestly, on a personal note, this has saved me and my eldest on so many occasions. We have gone on some very necessary walks because he has, um, he's the reason that I got into this work because he was evaluated at, at one year old with Dr. Moskotova and, um, and found to have a, just a pretty significant challenges that have been very helped, very, very significantly helped by MNRI. And still we have our things that we have to work through sometimes. And also he's a kid. <laughs> things right. are. I was just going to say, and he's a kid. And so they all, funky. they all have things. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, but that allows you to, so from all of these neurological perspectives, calm down basically. Right. But also you're outside, you're yeah. in the sun, you're getting natural light, you're getting fresh air, you're seeing greenery, you're seeing, you have a chain, a literal change of scenery. So I love the stupid mental health, mental health walk thing. And like, let's do it for our kids too. Yeah. What a great way to, to, if you live somewhere, you know, where it's not extreme weather all the time, right. But being able to do it after school or being able to do it, you know, now with the, at least by us right now with the time change, it getting light earlier. So the kids get outside time before school, those making it really purposeful. I love that. And it's something that I think is easier to integrate. Like you were saying, these are things that we just embed into the day. So we're not adding to the to-do list. We're just using up time that we already have available or that we're we're looking to fill with our really young kids or we just, it's into the structure of the day. So yeah. what's one, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. You go on there. I was just going to say it's inclusive. You know, sometimes I hear suggestions from, you know, well-meaning therapists and it really singles out the child that's having mm-hmm. a hard time. Mm-hmm. And such a good point. Yeah. Sometimes that's unavoidable. There have been times where I needed to take my son by himself without my other child on a walk. Yeah. But for the most right. part, it's a family activity. Right. It's universally helpful. So sorry, go ahead. What were you going to? No, I love I love that. That's such a good point too. And and I just did it today. I didn't until we were talking, I didn't even realize that, you know, we had kids didn't have school today. They had a really long play date with a school friend that came over. And then the transition with the friend leaving was really tricky. And then they were hungry and daddy wasn't home and daddy was supposed to bring dinner. And it was, you know, witching hour, like four thirty, five o'clock. I was like, oh, how am I gonna survive the next forty-five minutes? Hey, I'm gonna put the baby in the stroller. Let's mm-hmm. go for a walk. And all of a sudden, and now it's really great is because before it was so difficult to get them to walk, they wanted to ride their bikes. But now that there's a baby to push in a stroller and it's novel and new and they love it, they take turns pushing the stroller and we walked. I don't even know how far because they want to go to the front of the neighborhood, but then we walk up and down the side streets as well. So we probably end up getting about a mile, at least a mile in. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I love talking about grasp and we don't have to get super technical with grasp and all the different phases and all that stuff, but because fine motor skills are so widely noticed and talked about in early childhood, right? What are some things that parents, if they notice that, and there are other connections to fine motor skills, what are some other things that parents have readily available 
for their kids to help integrate those reflexes or help organize those reflexes. Yeah. Yeah. As kids get older, you know, that five, four for sure, but even more so in five and six, I like to work on, tell parents to work on grasp by going to the playground and climbing and pulling up and just playing outside. The monkey bars are fantastic, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the monkey bars. On most playgrounds, there is some type of bar where they can just hang and you can make it a game. How long do you think you can hold on? I'll catch you when you fall. Do you think it's going to be 10, 12? And the important thing about that is it's developing the foundation for fine motor skills, which is that gross palmer grasp. So often we skip straight to the tripod grasp and the pencil gripping. And I was certified in handwriting without tears. So like I've been through that, all of that as well. And I still think that with so much emphasis on the handwriting, we lose out and we miss sometimes the, I think even more important, gross Palmer grasp, which can again, just be achieved by going to your local neighborhood playground and climbing and swinging and playing and using their hands in that way. And that's not to say that handwriting isn't important or that you shouldn't support a child in their grasp. But if you have a pre-K or especially those like uh, in Florida, we have VPK, free pre-K or four and five-year-olds, I would much rather them spend their time if they have to choose between working on fine motor pincer type activities or going outside and climbing and pulling and grasping in that way. I would most often vote for the the playground stuff. I find that's really incredible because I think most people, even if they just have a basic understanding of some child development, right? So the gross motor skills are are the big movements. We talk about, you know, running, jumping, all that stuff. So most people, when they think of playground, they think gross motor, right? Because mm-hmm. climbing, swinging, you know, pumping the legs, running, jumping, all that stuff, that's all gross motor. But really this connection and this permission, because then flip side, right? You have this huge emphasis on fine motor during this age group. And so most of the time when people think about fine motor, they think about sitting, and doing something, writing, painting, cutting, something like that. This is permission. But what does your kid most likely want to do? A lot of children would rather be at a playground or doing, you know, engaged in kind of those activities. Not all. I have a child who's, I'd say, pretty equal balanced in what his interests are. He loves to sit and draw and also go outside and, and play. But permission to feel like you're still filling your child's need of fine motor development if they do need some support there by also taking them to the playground and encouraging them to climb, swing from the bars, do all these other skills, hang. We, we've got a couple playgrounds locally where they can like hang on the zip line. And I'm just thinking what a great grip strength, like they're holding on while this, that's, while the zip line is moving, you know, like that's yeah. intense right there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I definitely think it's not an either or I'm not saying that you should right. abandon right. any fine motor or crafty type. And they, right. they have so many fun games that incorporate fine motor now that are fantastic. 
But what I find more often than not is that's the only thing that parents are focusing on. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. it it's again, like that analogy that you gave before, like trying to build a house on sand when you're just focusing on that pincer grip, but never giving attention to that whole grasp, then I think it's harder. Yeah. Wow. I love that. And I love that. It's just what both of those things can really serve. You talked about making it into a game with the, with the child and the parent at the playground and going on family walks. Like what's at the core of that (laughs) is connection as well (laughs) is, is just being with your kids and being present. And this is all stuff that will benefit us as well as parents. You know, we get the reset when we go on the walk, we get to just revel in our child's presence on the playgrounds and heck, maybe do some inner child work ourselves and swing from the zip line or climb up the play structure. I'm definitely intentional about doing that when I or try those monkey bars and and wonder how how you did that (laughs) ever. I just was talking to a girlfriend. I was like, I remember I stopped wearing skirts in first grade because I hung upside down on the monkey bars so often. And I was so embarrassed that, you know, my skirts, I, before that only one wear skirts, I would show my underwear to everybody. So that's when I really stopped wearing skirts because I hung so much from the monkey bars upside down mm-hmm. as an adult. Now, never would I ever like I've tried a few years ago. Can't do it anymore. Can't do it. Wouldn't let go. No. <laughs> it's slightly terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for being here today. And thank you for all the work that you've done Well, with my whole family, but especially our current little guy. It's been amazing. It's been amazing to watch him really start to thrive from where we started to where we are now. And I just really wanted to give any parent listening or any caregiver really listening, if your gut is telling you, gosh, I just, I'm noticing my baby's not doing this. And I'm really wondering, you know, when is this milestone going to come up or this milestone is happening? Like they tell me it's happening, but it just doesn't seem, it doesn't look right to me or I'm not sure about it. Or it seems like baby's really struggling to do it. I'm not sure, you know, there's resources and there's places for parents to reach out to. And I think what I tell one of my lines is wait and see is not research-based. You can miss out on valuable time. What is research-based are evaluations. (laughs) It's having a professional who is specialized in an area, just take a look at your child, get eyes on them, get hands on them and say, you know what? Hey, everything looks great. Be well Mm -hmm. and, and be on your way. Or Hey, yeah, here's a couple of things that we can work on that I can help with. And babies, like you were saying, they are primed to wire this stuff so dang fast. So it's so much honestly easier and less stressful to do it when they're little. The younger we catch it, the better, right? So that was my message, just a message of hope and empowerment to moms and listen to your mom gut. Like, Go seek someone. And if you feel like a professional is blowing you off or they tell you to wait and see, go find another professional. <laughs> go find someone else who will listen to you and validate you and, and really be curious with you and answer all of your questions and answer your, your fears when you start telling them, you know, your concerns. 
where can people go to find more information about MNRI? And then thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Oh, so, and you and your, your, if you want to share your. Sure. Sure. Info. Yeah. So <laughs> there is a provider directory on the Moscatova website, which is moscatovamethod.com, M-A-S-G-U-T-O-V-A method.com. And that website has a ton of information. It has, um, like I said, the local provider directory. It has all of the research. It has upcoming events. It has lots and lots. On social, I am at momreflex on Instagram. Okay. Because you have information, good information on there. Yes, there is a lot of background information on there as well on Mom Reflex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Take care, guys. Mm 